Okay, well, welcome, everybody. It's great to have you with us. Nice to see some returnees from former ages. And um, it's great to see all of you. Uh, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And um, we're in Ecclesiastes, so we're going to be looking at chapter 3. Um, chapter 3, how cool is that? Yeah. Thank you. Chapter 1, verse 2. And two. Um, I did once, once preach on half a verse. That was accidental. I was supposed to do three verses. And I got a bit waylaid, so time ran out. Uh, anyway, enough of this. Uh, let me pray, and then we'll begin. Merciful Father, we're grateful to you for one another, and for this time and this space and this opportunity we have to have your word open before us, to hear your voice, and to reflect together on its wonder and its complexity. And we ask that as we do so, it would help us to unpick some of the complexity of the lives that you've laid before us. We are conscious uh, all the time, and then all the more so as we uh, focus our attention on it and look more closely at the decisions facing us. We are conscious of the, the difficulty of many of the decisions we face and of our inadequacy to make sense of them. And we ask that this time would be a fruitful opportunity for us to take a step back and reflect on why that is and how we ought to approach decisions that we will face regularly in life with wisdom and insight and clarity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, usual greeting, by the way, to uh, those of you who are at home. Uh, and Uriah is here uh, with his computer at the ready. So if you want, pardon me, if you want to ask questions, then just fire them his way, and he'll put his hand up, and um, we can hear what you have to say. We're in Ecclesiastes 3, and I want to um, read the first 15 verses of this chapter, and then we'll just jump straight in, and um, you can tell me what you think. I have some thoughts, but not enough to sort this out. So, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season... And a time for every matter, or perhaps every choice, or every decision under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 
I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So, I want to begin this evening by telling you a a brief story, which... um, uh, my wife Nicole, who's not here, she's um, she's she's allergic to Texas again, um, but uh, recovering from allergies, so she's at home, um, uh, watching no doubt with um, Becky and Abby. Uh, when we were first married, uh, we moved into this tiny little apartment in Slough, which is an old English word that means bog or um, kind of uh, you know watery marsh, uh, just west of London, and we had this tiny little apartment. And uh, one Sunday lunchtime, I think it was, we'd just come back from church and Nicole was cooking dinner. And I'd been meaning to fix one of the door handles. And so I came into the lounge and um, it went, and I thought, that's been annoying me for weeks. So I grabbed my screwdriver and my kind of toolkit and proceeded to dismantle the, um, the handle on the door and just kind of oil it and try and fix Meanwhile, Nicole is putting Sunday lunch on the table. And she saw me choosing that particular moment to, um, what would you say, do a little bit of kind of recreational DIY. And I think that day we both learned something about each other. Um, She learned about me that I'm at least well-intentioned and I'm trying to do the right thing. Uh, And I learned that there is a time for everything... And the time to sacrificially and servant-heartedly and cheerfully and diligently fix the squeaky door handle to the lounge was not when your newlywed is just putting dinner on the table. And it's interesting, as I think back, because it's a tiny, tiny and slightly ludicrous microcosm of a very much more extensive and at times more serious and difficult set of puzzles that we have to wrestle with. Uh, Because sometimes we have decisions to make, or sometimes we have circumstances that are forced upon us, and it's, it's not obvious how we should figure out what to do, because you've got a choice between multiple good things... Things that at least considered in themselves, in abstraction, are good things. And just thinking, well, which is right and which is wrong, isn't quite enough. It doesn't quite get you there. Um, And then it gets more complicated um, because you find yourself in a situation where circumstances are forced upon you that either impose certain actions or they constrain you somewhat. Uh, And that set of complexities, when either you're forced down a path in life that isn't what you'd have chosen, or when you're faced with a conundrum, a decision, and it's not obvious which you should choose, because you're choosing between multiple things which all look okay, is the situation that's addressed in 
this section of Ecclesiastes. It actually picks up somewhat from the previous context. I was puzzling over this, trying to think, how on earth is this anything to do with what we've been talking about in the first couple of chapters? Maybe you can think of some connections. Um, But what I was wondering was, by the end of chapter 2, you've gone through this long uh, list of things that Kohelet, the preacher, Solomon, has been exploring to try and figure out um, if there's a path to stability and security and longevity in his life and his activities. And he tries self-indulgence and he tries wisdom and he tries toil and he concludes that it's all vanity, just like he said at the beginning, his summary. It's all quite vanity, but it's mist, isn't it? It's beautiful and wonderful and yet temporary and elusive and can't be captured and certainly won't last forever. But then he gets to something like a conclusion in chapter 2, verse 24. And you notice this, we kind of ended up here last week. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This, I saw, is from the hand of God. And you might think, well, that's nice. (laughs) Phew. Ecclesiastes is just two chapters long and we've reached a nice stable conclusion because we've gone through all these confusing things which seem not to lead anywhere permanent. And what we've concluded is you should just eat and drink and work and enjoy life, and that's fine. But you have a problem immediately. The problem is hinted at because even at the end of verse 26, this is vanity and a striving after wind. So this isn't the stable end state that you might be longing for. And then, just to throw a whole toolbox full of wrenches in the works in chapter 3, Kohelet, the preacher, dumps on us an almighty list of different circumstances which either impose painful necessities on us. There's a time to be born and a time to die. Or they place before us choices where it is not at all obvious what we should do. Just look down the list. How do you know when it's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing? How do you know when it's a time for love and a time for hate? How do you know when it's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what's planted? Well, maybe you think you would know because of, you know, If it's an agricultural metaphor, maybe you have some clue. But you see, as you look down the list, can you see those two different kinds of pairs of circumstances intertwined? Some are the imposition of inescapable paths of life that you're forced down. Others are bewildering choices where nobody's going to tell you what to do. And just asking what's right and what's wrong isn't enough. Just a quick summary of the text that we read so you can get a sense of what it is that we're looking at. Verse 1 is actually a wonderful little mini chiasm, which you can see even in English if you've got the English Standard Version. For everything, there is a season and a time for every matter under the sun. Can you see? Everything, season, and then in reverse order, season or time, everything under the sun. Um, The word translated matter is... um, It often means delight, actually, but normally it it means that because it's a sense of a positive choice that you take delight in. 
more basically here, it seems to just mean a choice. Yeah, and Anne, you had your hand up. Yeah. Um, yeah, very good. It's um, it's a mini chiasm in the sense it's A B B A. Not every chiasm has an odd number of elements, so they don't always have a have a um, uh, a central element. Um, and the most basic chiasm is actually just A B B A, and it's more an artful turn of phrase, really. Uh, that's more familiar to certain ancient writers like the ancient Hebrews than it is to us. Um, we might put it, for everything there's a season and for every matter under heaven there's a time. You know, A, B, A, B. And sometimes the Bible writers do that. But this is, they've switched it around. And then what you've got in verses 2 to 8, did anybody count them? Yeah? In um, the the... In verses 2 to 8. Oh, I one as well. Ah, right, okay. So there's lots of, t- lots of times it says time. You've got 14 pairs of time for this and time for that. So 14 pairs, 28. Bear with me, okay? I think the point is 28 is 4 times 7. Seven, obviously, the full extent of a complete period of time. Six days of creation and one day of rest, seven. So seven often uh, indicates completeness. And here, I think, in relation to time, because of the connection we've already seen to Genesis. So why are there 28? Well, it's to introduce four into the equation. No no pun intended. Um, Four, I mentioned two or three weeks ago in a sermon, is a is a number that has a very particular symbolic significance. Anybody remember what it is? I'm going to cast your mind back. There are four sections in the geographical breakdown of the inheritance of the tribe of... Is it the tribe of Judah? I think it's the tribe of Judah, if I recall. Um, the four... What are there four of? Four corners of the world, four directions. And several times in Ezekiel, in... in um, in Revelation, a couple of times, four is used in a context where it, it, a phrase like the four corners of the land or the four corners of the earth or the four winds of heaven to indicate geographical totality. So actually, if you want a numerical symbol f- for the earth or the whole world, four is probably what you do. So if you wanted a new world, you'd pick eight, which is why there are eight people in the ark, which is why Jesus was resurrected on the eighth day and so on and so forth. But four the whole extent of created space. Seven, the whole complete cycle of created time. And so within that context, this list of, there's a time for this, and there's a time for that, and this, and that, and this, and that, seems not to be trying to give an exhaustive bullet point list of all the decisions you'll ever face, but rather to be indicating all of the kinds of decisions you might face. Are you with me? It's not saying that every decision you've got falls on this list. There'll be decisions you make that aren't specifically mentioned here, like should I go to Bible study or not? But you'll find here all of the extremes of human experience kill and heal, birth and death, love 
and hate, war and peace. You see, you've got the far extremes of human experience and lots of things scattered in between. As though what Solomon is trying to say is uh, all of the things you can imagine doing that wouldn't be outright sinful, all of the things you can imagine doing throughout your life, wherever you are, time and space, there'll be a time for this and there'll be a time for the other thing. So all of your choices about which good thing to do will be in competition with other potential good things to do. Can you see what I'm saying? So let me give you a couple of obvious examples. You all came to Bible study tonight. Why? Well, you might say because it was a good thing to do. You'd be correct. It's abstractly considered. It's a great thing to do. But there are a whole bunch of people here who didn't... Sorry, not here, not here who didn't come to Bible study. Why not? Did they choose what was evil? No, of course not. I mean, nobody's going to say that. Is it the case that the only really committed people at All Saints Presbyterian Church are you faithful few? We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood... Remember Henry V? Shall be my brother, be he... Anyway, Shakespeare. Um... Is it the case that we're the faithful few? We're the faithful remnant? We're the twicers? Yeah? You heard that phrase? I, I, um, an old friend of mine, is, he now ministers in New Zealand. He went to a church when he was a young lad growing up, Baptist church, and one of the elderly men there, he used to have a morning service and an evening service, and one of the elderly men there once snorted about people who only, only came to church in the morning, and he said... <laughs> I calls them wantsers. <laughs> wantsers. Then you go to church once. <laughs> yeah. So, of course it's not. Of course it's not. And why not? Well, because, obviously, there are lots and lots of other good things you could be doing. I was speaking to a, uh, a gentleman from this church a few weeks ago, and I said, I think it would be a bad idea for you to come to Bible study. Not ever. It's like, not, please don't come because your questions are too difficult. Or no, it wasn't that. It was just, you know, we'd had a chat about the various commitments he got going on in various aspects of his life and work and home and everything else. I said, listen, bro, just, why don't you, why don't you not come for a while and then and could come in a few months' time once things are settled down? And he's like, yeah, that's a good idea. And part of wisdom is figuring out not how to choose between good and evil. You've got to do that. The really difficult thing comes, between choose, comes when you're choosing between good and good and good and good and good. And we are capable of making all kinds of foolish mistakes. Because it turns out that some things which are, abstractly speaking, actually good, just considered in themselves, will be a really bad thing for you to be doing. Um, for example, let me give you a really provocative example. Is there, is there such a thing as too much prayer? Prayer. Could you pray too much? Absolutely. Sorry, guys, I just got a personal, personal me and Jesus time. Excuse me. Right. right. So, why? why? Are you going to be telling me prayer is bad? No. You're not saying prayer is bad. What you're saying is, 
taking a mature look at the whole of the circumstances that you're now in and that you've been in all day, Pastor Jeffrey, you should have done your praying earlier. And you're not going to remedy that wisely by doing it now. It would be a bad thing for me to stop now and go and pray. Similarly, when you're supposed to be at work or and there's a diaper needs changing or food that needs cooking or eating or whatever. Sorry, darling, I've just finished the, um, repairing the squeaky door handle. I'm just going to spend a few minutes in prayer. <laughs> she would have thrown the food at me and with every justification. Because, can you see? It turns out that the really, really tricky decisions are often, not always, but often between good and good, right and right. Not necessarily between right and wrong. So then just to finish off working through um, verse 9 to 15, this seems to me, at least, to be connected with the previous because they're just a couple of hints. So verse, verse 9 and 10 seem familiar refrains, don't they? What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business of, that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Um, and a lot of what's gone before is toil, various kinds, whether you're a soldier or a farmer or a builder or whatever. Verse 11 captures it and, and to my mind, cements verses 9 to 15 onto the, the bottom of page eight, of verse 8. There is, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Can you see that? That beginning of verse 11 is like, yes, I get it. There is a time for love and a time for hate. There is a time when hate is a beautiful thing to do, hence Psalm 6. Or Psalm 5. When the Lord hates that which is unrighteous. Uh, There is a time to go to war. And there is a time for peace and so on and so forth. There's a time to give birth and there's a time where it would be really a bad idea to give birth. Baby's not ready. And so so on and so forth. So um, verse 11 seems fairly obviously to connect everything together. Um, And I think there is a subtle connection as well in um, verses 12 through 15. Let me just read that again. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. Now, I wanted to say a word or two about this because I, I think this is right, but I'm not 100% sure. One way of talking about verses 2 through 8 is to say it's about time management, prioritizing the use of our time, yes? There's a time to do this, and there's a time to do that. Now, think for a second. If you had limitless amount of time, or if more abstractly you weren't constrained by time, if you had one of Hermione Granger's time-turners... So you could be in theology class and math class at the same time, or you could be here and at home at the same time. If you weren't constrained by time, none of this would be a problem for you. you. You wouldn't be anxious about what I should do now, because now wouldn't constrain you if you're beyond time. Well, that's the situation that God's in. Um, whatever God does endures forever. I'll pause for a second. Anne, you've got your hand up. Hmm. Yes. Would 
being unconstrained by time be good or bad for us? It would be bad for us in, if we had that in the sense that God is. To aspire to be like God in that way would be bad. Um, yeah. It's actually good for us that we have these created limitations, which is part of the point. But there's a sting in the tail. Okay, so there's a contrast being drawn here. We have these time for this, time for that, time for this, time for that, because of our temporal constraints. God doesn't have such constraints. Whatever God does endures forever. So, I want to plant this seed of this thought in your mind. If it were the case that we could enter a new realm of existence where we were still constrained by time, but had no lack of time, would it still be the case that all of our labor would be in vain? If, to put it another way, if we were resurrected and glorified and given unending life, would we still want to say all the things that Solomon has said in chapters 1 and 2 in the kind of unqualified way that he said them about our labor being in vain and it's vain that I should work all my life for this, this kind of stuff for my estate and then when I'm dead and gone, I'll leave it to somebody who's not worked for it. You know, that wouldn't apply in the resurrection, would it? So though the, the resurrection isn't freedom from time itself, it does remove the problem of not having enough time. So wouldn't it be interesting if at the very climax of the longest sustained reflection on the doctrine of the resurrection in the whole Bible, Paul the Apostle said, your labor in the Lord is not, what? In vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Just, just turn to that briefly for me. I don't want to explore this in huge detail, although that might be um, vain hope. Now I've sown the seed. You might all want to talk about it. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. It seems to me inescapable when you're reading Ecclesiastes to that we should eventually think of this. And it's really remarkable that this comes at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. You all know 1 Corinthians 15. It's a, it's a wonderful, long, long chapter about where Paul begins by reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached, which includes the declaration of the resurrection of Jesus. And then there's a sustained emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus, verses 4 through 11. And then he's exploring the character of the resurrection and the implications of it all the way through to verse 57, um, uh, well, verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory in the risen one over the sting of death, um, which is sin. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work, <laughs> Ecclesiastes, anybody, of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, which on the face of it, comes close to a formal contradiction to the message of Ecclesiastes. But I don't think it contradicts it. It's talking about the character of life once we have the perspective of what the resurrection grants us. I think that's probably right. 
we will no doubt end up talking about it a little bit. Let me pause there a little bit. I've thrown some general thoughts out about this text. I've got some specific examples, and then um, I want to dig a bit deeper into some of the underlying uh, theological complexity. But let me pause. You've got some questions. Samuel, you had your hand up. Uh, well, in regards to what we were just talking about with what was portrayed in, in Corinthians, could we maybe we could stop viewing that as a contradiction of mm-hmm. what's going on in Ecclesiastes and more of like a resolution? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, using the word contradiction wasn't intended to say, yes, I think it stands as a material contradiction. It's a, it's a tension which resolves in exactly the way you're saying it. A resol- the resolution is to recognize that the perspective that Paul the Apostle is occupying in 1 Corinthians 15 is saying... Um, we're, we're now exploring the character of this life that won't have no end, where there won't be the actual character of life which Ecclesiastes specifically mentions, you know, bounded by death, where you work all your life and leave your inheritance to somebody who didn't work for it, for example. So I've, it's, that doesn't mean we don't need Ecclesiastes, obviously, because right now we're in a life that's bounded by death, with all the attendant frustrations and real choices we have to make, which we'll get into in a few minutes' time. But, but Paul also wants us to inhabit the, the space of the resurrection as we're thinking about our life. So, yeah, thank you. Great. Um, any other thoughts or comments? Um, Mrs. Bennett, yeah. Correct. So what your what your what your work is producing is everlasting because it's spiritual growth in other people. Um, like so what your work is producing is everlasting, y- yes, because it's spiritual growth in other people, yes, but not only because of that. Um, one of the features of the resurrection is that it is the harvesting of all the good things that were planted. Here, remember? It's one of the reasons why it was a good job that we talked about the resurrection before we did this. I know we didn't um, spend as much time on it as we, as we could have done. But what, what happens in the resurrection is that all of the goodness that is planted here is raised and transfigured and glorified so that you, you start to see that from that perspective, it's not in vain. Um, the, um, the craftsman who spends 10 years of his life before he dies carving gargoyles so high up on a cathedral wall that nobody can see them, and then an earthquake destroys the cathedral. Like, well, that was, that's just hevel, that is. I mean, sorry, that's just really... That's exactly what Ecclesiastes is talking about, isn't it? So what will happen in the resurrection to that? All of the effect that it had on him and the effect that he had on anybody else, everybody else that he knew, and also perhaps even that building itself will be literally raised from the dust. So an awareness of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, draws our attention to the fact that we don't inhabit the... When we think of death, we don't think of death as the end. 
Have any of you been slightly nervous the last two or three weeks and have been talking about death as though it's the end? Did you notice that? Did, did any of you want to say, hold on, but death isn't the end? Yeah? And in a sense, death is, but in a sense, death isn't. And it's the is and isn't that generates this texture between Ecclesiastes and 1 Corinthians. So it is vain, and it's not in vain. Yeah? And Solomon, you know, son of David, sees dimly the shadows of Psalm 16 and so on, and, and the promise of the resurrection, but doesn't perceive it with the clarity that we see in the light of Christ. Does that help a bit? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I warned you it's not simple. Sorry. So, are you all, all happy? So, let, let's just... What I want to do is... We, we could... See, here's the thing. You could look through verses 2 to 8, and we could try and sort of analyse each one. And I don't want to stop us doing that. Uh, so, do have a look through that, and I know you have been. And maybe some particular examples we will spend a bit of time on. I think it'd be really good for us to look at verse 4, for example... Time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I, I think we are very, very bad at facing uh, mourning and death as a society. And we tend to think that um, everything has to have a happy ending. All of our fiction and uh, all of our movies and so on. And Well, why? Uh, we're emotionally ill-equipped for the realities of life unless we realise there's a time to weep and there's a time to mourn. So it'd be good to think about that. But what I want to do first is just to um, to flesh out the, the, the issue of apparently conflicting priorities a little bit more. Let me give you some examples. And these are, these are just initially just secular proverbs, okay? You've heard... Um, the proverbs, better safe than sorry, and nothing ventured, nothing gained. Have you heard those proverbs? And does it occur to you that they mean basically the opposite thing? <laughs> um, don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Beware of Greeks bearing gifts. I mean, they basically mean the opposite thing. Um, do to others as you would have others do to you. Well, that's a saying of Jesus, which has attained the status of a secular proverb. And... Nice guys finish last. Is another secular proverb, which, again, it, you see? Um, too many hands make light work, too many cooks... Sorry, many, many hands make light, light work, too many cooks spoil the broth. It's just obvious, plain contradiction in these pieces of secular proverbial wisdom. Right, so why are we talking about... Sec- apart from the saying of Jesus. Well, why are we talking about secular proverbial wisdom? Because... These sayings emerge from people's experience of life, yes? What people notice in life is that too many cooks spoil the broth and many hands make light work. So what are you supposed to do? Do you want a bit of help? Um, well, which proverb are you going to follow? You, you don't know. And this phenomenon is not limited to the secular world. Obviously, it's right there in the Bible. So... Um, there was a time in my life when I happily meditated frequently on Psalm 127, verse 2. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Isn't that lovely? I love that psalm. 
unfortunately, Proverbs 31.15, she rises while it is still night and provides food for her household and portions for her maiden. So it's vain to rise up early, but the godly woman rises while it's still night. Go figure. Should we speak or not? Proverbs is full of this. Um, Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not absent, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Whoever belittles his labor, neighbor lacks sense, and a man of understanding remains silent. So restrain your lips, remain silent. A prudent man conceals knowledge, Proverbs 12, 23. Conceal knowledge, keep silent, restrain your lips. Right. So you're in one of those situations, yeah? When there's a kind of conversation going on, it's at the cigar lounge on Tuesday night or something, or you're with some of your friends at work, and somebody said something, you're thinking, no, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> you ever been in that situation? And maybe you go, maybe I shouldn't. And maybe Pastor Neil's there, and he says something, and you discover as you're listening to him the wisdom of, that other set of proverbs that say to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season how pleasant it is righteous lips are the delight of a king and he loves him who speaks what is right a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. Isn't that just amazing, evocative imagery? And so are you supposed to speak or not? So there you are, I don't know, friends at work, first Tuesday cigar night, with the ladies talking about something or other. Somebody says something, you think, hmm. And should you? And I can't tell you how many times I've had people come to me and say, Here's such and such a situation. Should I have said something? Should I say something or not? Yeah? And you've got inspired instructions pushing you in diametrically opposite directions. What kind of speech? If you're going to speak, so there we are, first, first Tuesday, right, I'm going to say something. Proverbs 26, verse 4. You all knew this was coming. Just turn back to Proverbs 26, verse 4. You think somebody might have spoken a little foolishly. And so, you're, you're about to open your mouth and you remember, hold on, I should just think carefully before I speak. What, what exactly should I say? Do I answer back? Do I kind of punch back? Or do I find a way of kind of trying to smooth this situation down? And you remember Proverbs 26, verse 4, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Which is immediately followed, as you know, by answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what are you supposed to do? Can you see the problem? Actually, in real life, even unbelievers have figured that it's not... You you need Proverbs to tell you to do completely opposite things, because sometimes opposite things... One thing, sometimes the other thing might be right. And in Scripture, you've got this all over the place. And the, the complexity that 
arises because of competing priorities. That's what we're talking about. Competing good things. Just for clarity. We're not talking about, should I worship Allah or not? Like, no, obviously. There are no circumstances in which that's a good idea. Should I date this unbeliever? He's really cute. Like, just no. Like, that's a really stupid idea. Don't do that. Really. Ever. There are... There are those are, you don't come and talk to your pastor about that, I hope. You don't need to come and talk to Some people probably should, but really. The, the kinds of questions we have to deal with are the, the complex ones. Let me give you just a, a smattering that I scroll down here. Then I'm going to pause and we'll just jump into a couple of them. Like, should I have another slice of cake? Well, who thinks yes? But you're like, hmm, it is Sunday. But, mm, yeah, it, yeah. Should I go to Bible study? I mean, I think that's a really interesting one. Um, we're, we've married. We've married a couple of years. Sh- should, we, should we try to have children? Well, I think there are a few situations in Scripture where the Bible says that's a bad idea. Or at least um, a bad idea even to get married, given that you're likely to have children. Should I go to college? Oh, man, we could have an entire Bible study on this one. Because what's really interesting is, so this reveals one of the problems with this kind of decision. Decisions which require a choice between competing good priorities, what very often people do is they have a whole set of preconceived ideas or other commitments which really incline them towards this one, not this one. And so they'll selectively adduce all of the evidence in favour of this and none of the evidence in favour of this and hyper-simplify, not over-simplify, hyper-simplify every situation to the point where, if you're not paying attention, the decision looks simple, when in fact it's not simple. Should you go to college? Well, it depends how much it's going to cost. It depends who you are. It depends how much you'd gain from it. But how easy it is to oversimplify that, like you've got to have a degree, otherwise your job will never be secure because there'll always be somebody younger than you and smarter than you and stronger than you coming to take your job. You have to have a degree. Or colleges are bastions of sexual immorality and wokeness and they'll leave you in six or seven figures of debt for your entire life. Don't go to college. Can you see? The temptation for many people is to hyper-simplify complex decisions. Even the Wednesday night Bible study one gets hyper-simplified. Twices or onces. Are you, are you really committed? Do you really love Jesus? Well, if you really loved Jesus, right? And a mature and wise and fully biblical answer to all these questions will require us to take into account a whole bunch of competing factors, including what Solomon says here, that there's a time for this and there's a time for that. 
um, back at Emmanuel in London way, way back years ago, we used to do, um, for the first few months of the church, on Sunday afternoons, once a month, we'd go out and do some open-air evangelism. There's one more example, then I'm going to pause and see what, you, you throw some ideas at me. And what we do is we get some questionnaires, uh, like 10 questions on a questionnaire, and we'd go down to the tube station or the bus station and just try and engage people in conversation. Our aim would be to start a conversation with them to the point where we could uh, invite them to church if they wanted to come. If they were Christians and looking for a church, we'd at least be able to find out. We could encourage them if they wanted to come to a, uh, one of our meals after worship, just to come and join us. And so I used to go and I used to try and encourage all of the teenage boys and all of the young men in their 20s and any young ladies who wanted to come, to come. But I used to say to some of the mums who've got like five, six, seven children who are just thoroughly exhausted after a week's homeschooling, like, I don't want you to come. I do not want you to spend your Sunday afternoons exhausting yourself further. There's a time for everything. Like, your time for doing evangelism outside the tube station is not now, I don't think. Oh, don't you really believe in evangelism, Pastor Jeffrey? It's like, please. Like, yes. Uh, I believe also in uh, making sure that mums who've got a homeschool half dozen kids have had enough sleep by Monday morning to do a really great job of it, which requires us to weigh competing priorities and work out what to do with them. Right, let me pause, because um, I suspect you may have all kinds of questions, practical questions. I've got a few, um, what we might call methodological or theological background points that we could reflect on, but I don't want to keep talking at the expense of the practical stuff that you might want to throw up. So, any comments or thoughts so far? This is Taylor. Yes. By God's standard, they died when that yes. fruit was eaten of. The only thing I really... I had some stuff in the middle, breaking down, building up, kind of sounded like Babel. Obviously, kill and heal sounded like Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. The only one that I really have as much confidence in as the garden is the last one, the time for war and time for peace, being the manifestation of the Lord, Jesus, as yes. he is a peace bringer, but he also... Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. So uh, you started with verse 2 in the garden and, and thought, I'll, I'll run this hypothesis that I can map it onto biblical history. Yep. Nice try. It would be great, wouldn't it? If it, <laughs> it was, yeah, I think, I think the, the reason you can find episodes that fit is that, as I said, I, I think those seven verses as a whole are supposed to indicate the whole of the extremes of human experience and many points in between. I don't think there's some particular narrative trajectory. Right? So Cain and Abel is in there because that's a fairly extreme human experience, time to die. Um, the creation narrative is kind of, you, might, you can see that in verse 2, born, plant, because that's part of human experience. Ditto the ministry of Jesus and his character as a warrior and a peace bringer in verse 9 yeah because um, and you can see uh, lots of other biblical 
episodes, especially the extreme ones in this, but I don't think there's some kind of narrative substructure to it. It'd be neat if there was, wouldn't it? That'd be just, like, awesome. And believe me, if, if it were there, I'd be, like, I'd be right with you, but I'd... We don't want to go seeing patterns where there aren't any. Yeah. Um, Jack, yeah. Uh, another probably noticing too many little details in organization. There's a couple of places where the order of the positive and negative things reverse yeah. themselves. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, and it's, I think there's two that are the same, and then it's positive, negative, then five, then three, then two, then one, then one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wondered about that. Um, so most of them you can see a positive and negative side. Can't you? Born, positive, die, negative. Kill, heal. But then weep, laugh, that's negative, positive. Mourn, dance, negative, positive. I think, well, I can't discern any pattern or rationale in that. And I think that's probably deliberate as well. If they were all positive, negative, positive, negative, let's say, then we could, or at least if all the clear ones were, then that would entitle us to read into the ones that might be slightly less clear, oh, this is the positive side, that's the negative side. But I, don't, I just don't think that seems to be what's going on. And presumably, that jumble is deliberate. In other words, it's not, it's not relegating the quote-unquote negative aspects of the experience to a kind of second place. Um, so war comes before peace. And um, breakdown comes before build-up. So that we don't start thinking of... We, we don't, we're not supposed to have inappropriate moral hesitations about things that there is a time for, even if they're not nice things. I think that might be the point. And by jumbling them up, Solomon avoids giving that false impression. Which means that sometimes it's absolutely required to miss church and go to war. So, thank you in advance for your service. And anybody else who ends up there. Uh, yeah, Aaron. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't deliberate, but you put your hand up, brother. So. <laughs> you may have already mentioned this a bit, but as I'm looking at this, we have the vanity of toil section that's in my Bible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 18 through 26. And then you have time for everything, and then it goes right back to the toil path. Mm. I don't know if this is clear or not, but why is the time for everything just kind of smacked in there? We have this, like, you know, 14 things, and it seems to go right back into the. Oh. You know, toil and vanity and kind of like that seems a little bit random. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know except to say, so why is the, we get back to the toil and um, what gain is there, all those kinds of recurring themes. I think they're just recurring themes throughout the whole book, Aaron, that's why they're here. So um, Solomon throws them in to punctuate a... Uh, a series of reflections which head off in different directions because it's part of the melodic line. Like you, you, the, the vanity thing, Hevel, keeps, keeps coming up because that's part of the me- melodic line of the, of the whole book. Um, yeah. C- can I? Oh, yeah, go ahead, Tyler. Um, I don't really know how to phrase out this 
noticing that of these pairs, one of them can't really be defined as being a choice. Uh, it's it's a thing that's inevitable. It's the very first one, a time to be born, a time to die. Mm. So I'm I'm kind of just wondering why of all of these other things that would be either choices or you would have you would have influence in whether or not it happens, why time to born and time to die, which is a thing that will always happen yeah, to yeah, a person, yeah. why is that included? Yeah. I, I I don't know why it's included except that it's just such a real life point. It, it, in effect, it, you're, you're calling to my mind what I was trying to say right near the beginning, that there's a mixture of two sorts of complexity. There is complexity that arises because of two apparently good options. Um, get a Bible study or stay home and paint the front room. That's one source of complexity. The other source of complexity is when unfavorable and unpleasant circumstances are just, are just imposed on us. And, and what, what's really interesting is, well, it's, it's all kind of interesting, at least to me, and I suspect to you guys as well, when those two get mixed up. And it, I, I wanted to look at verse 4. So look at this for a second. Um, a time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Now, do you get to choose when to mourn? Yes. Go on. Right. But was that really a choice? Or was it circumstances? There was a time frame that was not a choice. Right. Within that time frame, you had choices of Right, yeah. So you've got a, a certain amount of freedom... And within a, 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 a set of events that, I mean, tragically beyond your control and anybody's control. Um, more extreme, obviously, beginning of verse 2. Time to be born, a time to die. I mean, that's what's behind this, isn't it? Um, I, we can't easily avoid the recurrence of the theme of death in Ecclesiastes, but boy, do we try to avoid it everywhere else. Um, I remember when I was quite young, my grandmother died, and I, um, I can't remember whose decision this was, but it might, I don't think it was my mother's decision, actually. I didn't go to the funeral. Um, I don't think I went to my... Did I? I don't think I went to all of my father's funeral. Again, that, I think that was a... I think it was a choice that some of my relatives made in order to protect me. What do you think? Why not, Kyle? You need to mourn. You need to grieve. It's part of the part of life. Right. Unfortunately, it's part of life. Unfortunately, it's part of life. So raising kids. Um. How many of you children have got pets? You kind of under under twelve, under fifteen. Have you got pets? Little animals at home? <laughs> you don't count. You're eighteen. For goodness sake. Yeah. You've, what, what's your pet? I can't hear you, my sweet. 
What are they, is that their names? Labradors. Cats. Um, you know, um, it's how do you decide? Um, how do you weigh the um, the delight of giving your child a pet dog, knowing that not even pet dogs live forever? You're right. Right? Good, good. So you, that's interesting. So you have the you have these wonderful moments um, and that's the prerequisite for the loss. Yeah. But you notice what happens here is that as as a parent, if you have children your, the, the things that are outside of your control interact with things that are within your control. You know, we're not going to get pets for our kids because they die eventually and that would be too upsetting for them. I, I'm not convinced that's a great idea. You might not want to have a pet because you don't like whichever animal it is. That's fine. But, but that's not great logic. Have, we've talked before, haven't we, about um, how we are shielded from death and and funerals. So, so just factually, historically, um, I mean, I've never even seen a dead body, which is just astonishing. Like in in historical perspective, most people in the Middle Ages would have had multiple relatives, including multiple siblings, probably die in their house. Um, and we turn funerals into celebration of life events. You know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like we, we, we are... And it's not that you don't want to celebrate somebody's life, do you? I mean, because... But when are we allowed to mourn? Are we not... Is it not okay to, to weep? There's a you know, dozen or so psalms which are designed specifically to make you cry, including one that doesn't even have a happy ending. Psalm 88. Pastor Neil mentioned this months ago, that the final word of Psalm 88, my, my friends have become darkness. The final word, darkness. No happy ending. And it's, why is it in the Psalms? It's because it's part of human experience. So, and, so there is a time to decide to not resist any longer the Lord's inscrutable providence and even expose young, fragile, emotionally immature children to the pain of real human experience because that way they won't stay young, fragile, emotionally immature. They'll actually grow. Um, I want to say that to you now because it's much easier to say it to you now than to say it to you at some unspecified time in the future when that moment is upon you and praise God Carl that you and Jenny in the terrible circumstances of Jenny's father's death have had the, you know, you've obviously got the instincts already set up to handle this right with a little fed and then I guess with the rest of your family, you know 
Um, do, you want, do you want to share anything more about that? Just you know, it's funny not to just say all of my anecdotal experience, but it's funny how you're talking. And last week, I was thinking about these things the whole time. Like, what's the there's a Jewish practice of like the shiva where it's like you're supposed to have like eight days or something of like nobody's supposed to come to your house. Or, and we were constantly having people at our house, which you know. On one hand, it's nice because some of them are bringing with us, and you know they want to bring food, and a lot of people from church want to bring food. And, but on one hand, it's like it, it never gave us a chance to breathe mm. because we just had, yeah. and it wasn't their fault, but it's like we had the initial moment of shock, mm. and then we never really got to sit down and process. I was fortunate that I, I me and Jenny, one night grabbed a couple beers and just drank, you know, <laughs> just agreed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the only yeah. night where. I mean, I was sobbing and she was sobbing, but I was even thinking like at the funeral, like just these little things you said, the thing about you're celebrating life and the, the chaplain um, that, that did this, the service, that was the first thing he said. And I had to change, the hmm. first line in my speech was, we're here to mourn the tragic passing. I, I felt like, okay, well that's kind of inappropriate. Now. Yeah, you don't want to sound like you're critiquing the, yeah. the guy doing the service, but, yeah. But two last things, I, I just, this was just, how we even do the burial process is different. We don't actually, there's no finality to it. We leave the gravesite and the coffin's still up there. Mm. And I was pretty much emotionally fine, but where I started tearing up again was my father-in-law got the uh, honor guard treatment. So he had the flag, which was really nice. I, when they played taps and they did the final salute, I lost Because mm. it, it was, that was the final. Mm. So yeah. I had some, I was able to deal with it a little bit mm. just from that standpoint. But there's, it's almost like there's no finality to it. Yes, yes. And it's, you know, it is, it is prodigiously difficult. And, and the point you make about the, the chaplain saying the celebration of life thing, you think it's so well-intentioned. Um, but but you, people need to be licensed to mourn, that's what it says. Flip side... If you go to um, Greece, especially particularly traditional Greek communities, um, some of the Greek islands um, and some of the rural towns, you'll see um, large numbers of ladies, um, elderly ladies, widows, walking around clad entirely in black. Their husband might have died 30 years ago. And the tradition is that they wear black for the rest of their days. Some of you guys are nodding. You've seen that. What are your reflections on that? Mrs. Rosa? I grew up next to an Italian family that had come over because the father was sick and he didn't make it. Right. And his mother came with them. She wore black from the moment I had seen her. Mm. And then when the guy died, then the the wife wore black. All the days that I knew them, they, they walked around in black. Yes. So it's, it's traditional, some traditional Catholic cultures, Italian Catholics, um, Greek Orthodox. Um, Samuel, this part of your experience, uh, I don't know. It's, it's been practiced in, in certain days. Some of us, you know, I wore black um, for quite some time after the death of my maternal grandmother. Right, right, right. So. Yeah. And it's, but it's, it's another one of those things where, like, 
you can fall off this bridge one of two ways, can't you? Either by saying the funeral is not really a time to mourn, or by saying 25 years later we're still mourning. Like, guys, God, we, can't, we can't get it right, can we? Go on. Or, or the problem of going to a funeral and wearing dark clothes and like looking around realizing you're the only one mm. doing that. I've, I've yes. been in that situation. You know, where I wear something dark, but it's a celebration of life, so they didn't want anybody to yes. dark. So, so what drives that? Let's try and think about our culture a little bit. What drives the celebration of life thing? Fear of death? Fear of, like, existential confrontation with it. Open casket, all that kind of thing. We don't want... I just don't think people want to face it. Right. We had... The we overreact to, like, the war in Ukraine. We act like it's World War III. And it's terrible, it's awful, but we're hyperventilating it because we're not used to mm, mm. traditional conflict that the world forever has dealt with. Yes, yes. I'm not trying to bring COVID, but, like, we had COVID happen, right? Mm. Plagues are ubiquitous. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And, we, and we've handled them better than that. Right, and it's, it's we, we overreacted to this extreme because of there's yeah. something there that we're not, we've been spoiled, that mm. we're not facing somebody dying regularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you had your hand up. Yeah. Uh, the culture um, tied to Christ or not Christ? Beg your pardon? Is this a culture, hypothetically, tied to Christ or not to Christ? You're like, oh, this is scary. Nothing happy in death. Yes. So let's like, over it. Not, not knowing Christ could lead you in either direction, couldn't it? it I, don't, I don't want to speculate too much about the, the, the conscious motives of people who either um, can't face mourning at a funeral or who are mourning for three decades. Because what's going on in their minds is, is different from the overall direction of a culture. But the overall direction of a culture, you can say something about that. If you don't have Christ, then... Death, death is your point, Carl. It's, it is much, it's infinitely more fearful. So what do you do? Well, you're either constantly cowering in fear before it, and because you know this is the end, 25, 30 years of mourning, or you can't face it at all. And so it's like la 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 la. Try and not take take seriously its reality. Um, uh, we had a hand up over here. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Nan and or Taylor, have you got the same question? Or? Um, it's kind of piggybacking off the rest of this uh, so far is <coughs> as, a, as a culture, because of all of the things that, uh, of all of the prosperity that uh, as a nation we have received for so long, we are mm. very Right, right. Amongst ourselves, we're, we're so used to receiving, we don't want to have something taken away, so we don't want to. Mm. We want to. We want to ignore loss. We want to, to mitigate it. We don't want to see it for what it is and yes. move on. Yes. We try to put it off as long as possible, and it's, it's unhealthy. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, now, do you want to add something? 
Mm, right. And so a lot of it was focused, if they weren't talking about all the things she did, she'd already done, it was kind of this morning of things she wasn't now going to get to do. Yes. And it just made me think of what we brought up in First Corinthians, that there's a reason that Paul can tell us your works are not vain. Yes, yes. Whereas in that context, where I'm, I'm almost sure there were, which is hard to say, but I'm almost sure there was no belief or confession there. Yes, yes. All we could see was works that are no, they're going to disappear. Mm. In yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's, I, I can't get this funeral thing out of my mind. And I wonder if another factor that makes this difficult for our contemporary society is the loss of ritual yeah. and its significance. Yeah. 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 And what I mean is, if, if you have a formal ritual of um, uh, lament and grieving and thanksgiving and then burial and committal. The great thing about rituals is when they're done, they're done. Like, we've got a baby to be baptised in a few weeks. We've got a few babies being baptised. And baptisms are not like our prayers, you know? With our prayers, like you sort of sit down in sort of an evangelical hunch position like this, when you, um, and you pray a little bit, and you think, have I, have I done enough yet? Oh, no, I'm not sure. Um, probably should pray a bit more. It doesn't feel very long. 28 seconds. No, it's not very long. Um, and bless all the missionaries. And um, what, what was I praying about? Um, Pastor Neil, that was right, yeah. Uh, and we kind of go around in these unscripted, directionless circles. Whereas I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Excellent. That's done. Now we can move on. And it's not. And um, the, the the funeral liturgies that I've seen and that I've used are actually quite short and are tremendously dignified and they're rich and they're full of scripture. And, and you and you kind of it's fifteen twenty minutes, and that's how to mourn. And then. You pick up the pieces of the individual people, and some are still weeping, and some are, you know, they've, they've processed that. And, and it means afterwards, you, you're, not, you're not wondering whether it's okay to have a drink, or have a joke, have a cup of coffee, have something to eat. You're not, you're not wondering about that, because you all, you've got this confidence, we've, we've done the, the, the formal committal of this precious loved one. Because there's a time to mourn, and we've done that. Now's the time to dance. Now we can just relax. I haven't seen Uncle Joe for months or years. Uh, great, I can go and sit. Well, Mrs. Ben has had her hand up, and then Tim, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I think the danger is I, I love formality. And, you know, when I die, I'm free to make it nice and formal and all the parts and everything. But, um, you can ask my successor about that. You, 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 you better not be getting into this. <laughs> um, but Yeah, I think that's wise, and I think 
but then you're back in the, the sphere of saying, you know, God's sovereignty, not, over, not just over events, but over our emotions. But, and so we expect, like C.S. Lewis talks about the waves of grief, and he'll just be doing something completely innocuous, and suddenly he'll just be hit with this sledgehammer of horror at the loss of Joy, his wife. Um, but we can all, we can all recognise the there's something gone wrong with a certain kind of prolonged experience of grief, can't we? And so how do you define that? You search the Bible in vain for like a, a, an airport departure schedule kind of plan of how long it should take and when. There's, but you do get, there's a time to mourn and a time to dance and a time to weep and a time to laugh. Um, Tim, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Were they still having it? Were they still in mourning? Yeah. And, and we really don't know. Yeah. But it was a recognized part of their culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's four days after the, bar- after yes. the death. But yeah. Were they still mourning? Were they still having a tear? We yeah. don't know, do we? Really, clearly. It just says, yeah, yeah, you should yeah. come here earlier. You're late. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and he, he spent those, those multiple days beforehand just, well, you know, he, uh, he wanted to prove a point to his disciples and a bunch of other things, didn't he? But, yeah. You know, what, what should we do? What's the appropriate thing? Yes. Apparently that's, yes. there's some kind of vanity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, thank you. And you your hand up, then we should come close to finishing. Go ahead. Right. So when after Lazarus was, um, I'd probably say raised, resurrected is norm. It's a technical, tiny detail, and you'll see it or immediately. Um, resurrected is a, a term we normally reserve for give it a new quality of life that won't terminate in death. Whereas Lazarus did not receive that. He just received his original life back again for a period of time. But that's a minor point. I have no idea. I mean, he, the, um, it's, quite hard to, it's quite hard to imagine, and there's not a long discussion about the emotional state of everybody afterwards. You just, you know, just, the, the narrative moves on. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, and there's a time for everything and it's 16 minutes past eight. <laughs> so w- what we've not done, um, I don't think is crippling. Okay? Just, just, just to give you a sense of some of the things that we could have talked about. There were more specific um, kinds of decisions we could have discussed. And I alluded to a whole bunch of them. Um, and we can talk about any of those at some point in the future. The other thing we didn't do was to talk about one of the really helpful methodological tools for thinking about decisions like this. I've mentioned it in numerous contexts. Now, most recently, the last Men's Discipleship 
breakfast and also for the 11th and 12th grade theological students in their ethics classes. Um, three distinct, what John Frame calls, perspectives for viewing every decision. And I'm, we are going to spend some time thinking about that at various times in the future because it's an immensely fruitful and insightful way of analysing complexity. And it will open your eyes, I hope, to why and how to make certain decisions in what might seem initially like a counterintuitive way. It's really godly for me to stop praying. It's really godly for me to not go to church today because I've got to put fires out and I'm a fireman. Why is that okay? Why is that good, not just okay? Um, If you don't have a multi-perspectival way of looking at life, I don't know how you're going to deal with those questions. Scripture actually leads us down that path, and I want to share some of that with you again and again and again in the months and years to come because I think it's profoundly helpful. But we'll come to that another time. Um, thank you for your thoughtful comments and reflection, and Kyle, for you, um, especially um, wrestling with a painful situation as well. We appreciate that very much. Thanks, bro. Let me lead us in prayer, then we'll finish. Merciful Father, we cheerfully commit ourselves to your sovereign providence And then even as we do so, remember that we place ourselves thereby at your mercy, knowing that you order events in all kinds of inscrutable ways. And we ask for the wisdom to navigate those circumstances, recognizing that there's a time for all the things that you bring about in this world in which you've placed us. And so we thank you for revealing to us a little bit of how we might wisely navigate that complexity. Teach us, we pray, to be faithful with the time that you've given to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. God bless you all. Have the rest of a great evening. See you soon.